Welcome to Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, a really interesting show coming up today. And we're talking about building community immunity today. We have four guests two of which are emergency room physicians. We are also talking with a vaccine hesitancy researcher and a health officer in the state of Michigan. Lots of good information to come. And we'll get started right after these messages. Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, on today's show, we are going to be talking about building community immunity. So we want to welcome our first guest, Annette Mercatante, Medical Health Officer with the St. Clair County Health Department. Welcome to the show, Annette. Well, thank you. And I want to start out by congratulating both you and Veronica. You are Michigan's newest hometown health heroes. And this award was presented to both of you by the Michigan Public Health Week Consortium. So congratulations. I'm with two wonderful health experts. Thank you very much. Thank you. Veronica, why don't you start out? I know you want to kind of talk a little bit um, to Annette about what exactly is community immunity. Yeah, Annette, go ahead. Share that, that definition with us. We've been hearing so much about it because of the pandemic. Yeah, so in, in layman's terms, that really just means that there is enough um, uh, immune system response to a germ uh, where that germ does not have an opportunity to, to widely spread. Um, much of it uh, depends, the immunity level depends on how infectious that organism might be. So with highly infectious organisms, you very, need a very high level of immunity. And with lesser infectious organisms, lesser. But the bottom line is if, if there's a strong, if every individual has a, a immunity against a, a, a germ, uh, typically a virus, or or it can be a bacteria as well, that, that the germ doesn't have the opportunity to spread. And as a result, the entire community is then protected. Um, if you will, it just kind of fizzles out. It's like it, it can't get burning and it can't get moving through. And so that's our goal. Um, that has been a success in many of our vaccine-preventable diseases that we reach a point where the germs really don't spread like wildfire through a community because there's these firewalls of people who have immunity and the germ can't replicate it and move on. And so that's our goal with COVID, of course, is that we want a situation where it doesn't spread like wildfire um, and kind of debilitate us the way it's been. What does that community immunity concept do in terms of protecting our vulnerable populations? Sure. So no vaccine is 100% effective. And there's always individuals who don't mount immune responses, uh, either by vaccine or even by natural infection. So um, again, if you have a large amount of resistance against a virus or a germ replicating, then the entire community is protected because it just can't move on. Um, it, germs generally need human bodies, susceptible human bodies to replicate. 
and then move on to the next person. And so if it reaches a person that it can't replicate, kind of dies out. And so um, a strongly immune community will protect everyone, even those who aren't immune. And that's the beauty of vaccine-induced immunity is you don't have to wait for everybody to get infected in order to reach that level. Um, and infections generally don't help us reach that level because um, uh, infections cause a lot of illness um, and it causes problems, disease, which is not what we want. We don't want everyone to, to get really sick first to get that immune level. We want people to be stronger before um, we have so much in, input. What what are some myths around this concept of community immunity? And maybe um, I, I think it ties right into natural immunity. I think there's myths around natural immunity, too. Yeah. Well, first, I'd like to say that the whole concept of natural immunity is really uh, misunderstood. Uh, immunity you, uh, that is achieved by vaccine is natural immunity. OK, it is immunity that's achieved through a vaccine from our own natural immune system. So it's a misnomer when you say natural immunity It's all natural immunity. Uh, one O is based on getting infected and suffering the consequences of that infection and the disease. Uh, complications of illness and even death and hospitalizations where a vaccine generally does not create illness and therefore the immunity is um, easier to obtain. The other condition is we talk about community-wide immunity. It's generally not achieved through infection. Um, we don't see the widespread infections causing uh, achieving that level of immunity that we want for community protection. That is always historically achieved through vaccination only. So uh, that's the importance of a strong vaccination uh, acceptance rate in a community when you're trying to eliminate widespread transmission. I know Anne has some questions about this topic and, and some of the other work that you do. Annette, as the medical health officer for the St. Clair County Health Department, what are you seeing with regard to how people view this out in the community? Do we need more education about community immunity? It's a great question. Uh, some of this is education. Uh, I think some of it, this has been a unique situation. Uh, vaccines, of course, aren't new. Uh, even the mRNA mRNA technology is not really new, but it's been perceived, this whole approach to COVID is perceived as kind of suspect, which is interesting. Um, and I think that it has more of an emotional, political component to it than really um, an ignorance component to it. I, and I, I, I'm not using that word in a, in a derogatory sense, but yeah, there is a point where you have to try and educate people, but there still seems to be an extraordinary amount of fear and distrust with this particular vaccine. So I do think education is important. Again, uh, there's this concern that, well, why bother with a vaccine that I don't trust when I can just get infected with this virus and develop immunity? And I think the important thing people understand is our, our immunity from a natural infection is also appears not to be lasting for a very long time. That seems to be very clear with what we know already epidemiologically. So if you're going to rely on an infection to cause your immunity, um, you're really in no better place uh, as far as those of us who are, are relying on vaccines and getting boosters. So that's number one. And number two is you're, you're presenting yourself to getting really ill. 
Um, and the long-term complications of COVID infections are still not well understood, but clearly are profound with long COVID symptoms, uh, the cognitive impacts it seems to be having, the diabetic risk that seems to be creating. So the risk of getting a COVID infection uh, really outweighs tremendously from the risk of getting a vaccine. And people don't realize um, that Getting, uh, waiting to get an infection is just really a, a poor choice compared to uh, the vaccine itself. How do you help people who are still hesitant? You know, we know that just telling them they're wrong is the wrong thing to do. Um, you can't just say, no, you're wrong. You don't understand. <laughs> I think it's really important to under meet them where they're at. Understanding what their concerns are and more importantly, listening listening to their concerns uh, very actively, making sure that you let them know that you understand what, what their concerns are and, and trying to meet them where they're at. Some people may take um, a lot of work. Other people may just be, need to be reassured. And uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion. We talked about education, but educating our healthcare providers to do this kind of motivational interviewing approach where they're not just... Um, when they find a vaccine hesitant patient, not to just tell them that they're wrong, but to really listen to what their concerns are very carefully and try to respond to those those concerns very specifically and very um, compassionately um, and making sure that they, they listen well. Annette Mercatante, Medical Health Officer with the St. Clair County Health Department. Thank you for the time today. We really appreciate the advice. Thank you for having me. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. We'll be back right after these messages. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And we now say hello to Dr. Matthew Denenberg. He is a pediatric emergency medicine expert with the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital. Dr. Denenberg, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Veronica, as we continue this conversation about building community immunity, I'm going to turn this over to you to start the questioning uh, with Dr. Denenberg about uh, keeping children safe, keeping all of us safe during this rather difficult time. Dr. Donenberg, it's so great to talk to you today. Why don't we start by having you explain the difference between a pediatric emergency room and just a general emergency room? Yeah, sure. You know, there's always there's always a little bit of confusion with that. The general emergency room is an emergency department or emergency room that's within a general hospital. So most emergency departments in the United States are general emergency rooms. They take care of any anybody from all ages, all conditions, and um, there are about 2,000 of them across the country. Every hospital, almost every hospital has an emergency room. A pediatric emergency room is an emergency room that's specialized in the care of children, has uh, providers, physicians, nursing staff, ancillary staff, equipment, supplies. The environment is developed uh, to care for children. As you can imagine, children require different, different, um, different, have different illnesses, have different needs. Um, and so they're specialized for, for children. Um, that's the big difference. And in your practice over the years, have you seen children who have become infected with vaccine-preventable diseases? Yes, you know, I'm, I've, I've been doing this long enough for over 20 years. I, unfortunately, 
um, when I was younger, would, would see children who would be very sick with uh, homophilus influenza, which is a disease that caused meningitis and caused um, you know, high mor mortality and death and, and, and disability. And we've essentially eliminated that disease in this country from vaccination. So I've taken care of the extreme of those serious, serious illness. I have taken care of children in my career with uh, whooping cough. I've taken care of kids with, with uh, COVID. I've taken care of kids with flu. Um, I even took, have taken care of kids with TB when I was uh, earlier in my career. So, so lots of opportunity to stop preventable diseases. So we've seen with the pandemic uh, that, especially early on in the pandemic, that people stayed home. They, they didn't take their kids out to their well visits. And as a result, some of the vaccination rates have dropped in Michigan. Does that concern you? You know, that's one of the things that's really concerning us. In fact, we had a conversation with state leadership last week. Michigan was making some inroads. We were up over 70% for most of our childhood, important childhood vaccinations. Uh, through about 2018, we had, we had really worked hard to get to that level over the last decade. And we're seeing that drop for the first time in, in almost half a decade, almost a decade, below 70%. And we think it's a combination, you touched on it, a combination of children not, you know, not seeing their primary care physicians or pediatricians and family practitioners during COVID. And the previous caller touched on that, touched on this. I think the vaccine hesitancy from COVID is, is bleeding over, carrying over with other important childhood vaccinations like pertussis and measles and rubella and, and, and flu. So when you have someone who presents in the emergency room and you know, I, I would have to imagine as a part of the counseling, you may have had some conversations about vaccine hesitancy. What do you tell these parents? You know, it's 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 a challenge in the emergency department because they're usually in the emergency room for seeking care for some other condition. So you want to be we want to be really careful that we're taking care of um, what ails them while they're there. But we do try and educate. We, we offer the vaccine in the emergency department. We offer education on why it's important, the safety factor of it. Um, the need to get, you know, to 90% or 85 or 90% coverage for the sake of the community. Um, but we don't push it to the point of, of making them feel guilty. Um, we do our best, uh, but, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. We're still only hovering around 50% vaccination rate uh, for children in the state of Michigan for COVID and even less than that for, for the younger children. I know Anne has some questions, so after this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have her ask her questions. But in terms of impact, community impact, what can you tell us about the reason why it's so important for the vaccination rates to stay high? For, for two reasons. One is um, we know that children carry COVID, and they, and they carry it to highly vulnerable patient, people, so people that have immune disease, people that have complex medical illnesses, elderly you know, grandma and grandpa, you go to visit grandma and grandpa, and you may, as a child, may not be sick with COVID, but carrying it. So if you're vaccinated, your risk of carrying it is lower. And the other is, as we see more and more variants um, over the next period of time, we don't know whether the the fact that kids don't get particularly sick with it on a, at high numbers right now is going to hold true in the future. And so as, as we more kids can carry the virus, it allows it to mutate even more. And we, we just worry that one of these one of these mutations or one of these variants is going to infect kids in a in a more um, in a worse way than it does now, and then we're going to look back on it and wish we had pushed vaccines even more. So, 
And Dr. Denenberg, even though we would all like to wish COVID away, (laughs) (laughs) um, it's still here and, and we still have to deal with it until further notice. How do we protect our little ones that cannot yet get vaccinated? What should we be doing right now to protect them from getting it? You know, I actually think one of the most important things that we need to do is what we probably uh, should have been doing and have done for for things like flu and respiratory season uh, for years. Uh, Children of a younger age, if somebody's sick or ill, they shouldn't be around them. If if you know the COVID numbers start going up and we and we are local and regional and state public health agencies do things like mask mandates or encourage social distancing, uh, that applies to the little ones too. Um, I just think we have to you know keep them away from people that are sick, and when the little ones get sick, keep them away from other people. You know, it's it's the old adage. You know, when you have the cold, you know, stay away from others, and that's about all we can do. And for the little kids right now, until the vaccine gets approved in that age group, which which we're hoping will happen um, in the near future. Now, there's still a lot of misinformation out there, and I think a lot of parents are confused. What do you say to parents who come to you? Because, frankly, if I had a young child right now, you'd be the person that I would get the advice from. You're the expert. You see this all the time. What do you say to people who really are confused and might come to you with a lot of misinformation? We, we try and present the facts as, as best we can in a way that they'll understand the safety of the vaccine, the, the billions of doses that have been given around the world, the, the, the large number of doses in children, the low, low, low um, uh, complication rate from the vaccine. And also the, the, uh, the data shows that if you're vaccinated um, and you get COVID, you get less severe COVID. You stay out of the hospital. You're less likely to end up on a ventilator. You're less likely to die. Um, the other thing that we haven't talked about is you know, the multi-inflammatory um, condition yes. that kids get, MISC, which, which if you can't get that if you don't get COVID. So if we can prevent kids from getting COVID, they aren't going to get MASC. And we've had about 287 deaths or 287 cases in Michigan since the start of the pandemic, um, with about 188 of those kids ending up in an ICU. And so we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be on those kids that get MASC. And so, again, that's another thing is if we can you know, help parents realize that by preventing COVID, we prevent MISC and other potential sequelae in the future. Um, sometimes that helps. And sometimes they just need to hear from their primary care physician. We really do believe primary care physicians, your pediatrician, your family practitioner, your, you know, your nurse practitioner or physician assistant are the key to the vaccinations in Michigan. We've got to get pediatricians talking to their patients and talking to patients' families. And at the moment, do you really see big time side effects from the vaccine for children? Almost none. There's almost been no side effects. It's um, it's it's been an incredibly safe vaccine, and compared to other vaccines through history, um, it's been amazing. The side effects have been, you know, almost non-reported. Well, that's great to hear, Dr. Matthew Denenberg, pediatric emergency medicine doctor with the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital. Thank you for the great advice and your expertise, and for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. Veronica, our next guest on Why I Vaccinate is Jillian Steelfisher. She is the Senior Research Scientist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Jillian, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you all. Veronica, I'm going to have you kick this off because this research that Jillian does is fascinating. It really is. Jillian, can you talk to us a little bit about your research and vaccine hesitancy? Oh, I'd love to, especially since you called it fascinating to start off. That's great. (laughs) Okay, well, I think it's fascinating. Um, My work is focused on using surveys to understand people's views about infectious diseases and all of the things they might do or not do to protect themselves, their families, what they might think of different policies. And of course, a key piece of that is whether or not caregivers are going to vaccinate their children. And so I try to understand how people think about that decision, not only whether or not they're going to do it, or they have, but why or why not? And also what influences that decision, you know, who they trust to provide them with advice, kind of how that decision gets made in the larger context. And what are you finding in your surveys lately? Well, I think, you know, lately, right? Okay, so let's talk about COVID, right? Let's talk about the obvious here. Um, And, you know, I think it's important to understand that the actual vaccination situation has really changed in the wake of COVID. Let's think about what vaccination was like before COVID so we can understand that. So most vaccines for kids before COVID, like maybe apart from HPV, um, they were offered when kids were small. Um, They were focused on diseases like polio that really affect small children with devastating consequences. Uh, Most of those vaccines were, um, they've been around a long time and parents had a chance to see their safety in action, right? Their effectiveness in real life. Most of those parents were vaccinated themselves. Um, and they made this decision as part of like routine care for their kids, mm-hmm. uh, like one at a time. They have a baby, they think about the decision, they meet their pediatrician, they make the decision, it goes like that, right? Um, and so the vast majority of parents, uh, you know, there's always a small fraction that has concerns, but the vast majority decide to vaccinate their kids, protect them against things like measles, polio, and it becomes kind of integrated in care. And COVID changes almost all of that. It's a new vaccine. Um, the infection that it protects against can have severe consequences in children, but is more commonly very severe in adults. Um, it's suddenly offered to kids of all ages kind of at once, right? So parents are making the decision outside of the physician's office often, outside of their usual kind of trusted partners in this. Um, and not surprisingly, we've seen that more parents question the value of, the fas- of this vaccine for their children. You know, it's going to take some time to get used to, to see um, how, uh, you know, safe they really are, um, and to integrate that vaccine into routine care and decision-making. Um, and, you know, um, you know, we want to think about that not only for the COVID vaccine, but also because, um, you know, we want to think about how those considerations might affect parents' considerations of uh, routine vaccines as well. Well, you mentioned that in your, in your research, you're finding that parents are uncomfortable sometimes with the idea of doing this outside of their provider's office. Yeah. So, what role then, how important of a role do these providers play in the advising and counseling on, on vaccines? Yeah, I, I can't emphasize enough, you know, healthcare professionals are really important in the decision, even when it's not happening in that office. Um, I, I wish it were more often. So just uh, so to read it, I think what some of your other guests have said, I think it's really important. We see so often, I, I think in every survey I've ever done, Um, The most trusted source of information um, for parents and caregivers is their pediatrician or another healthcare provider. Um, And it's important to understand, you know, not just that they are, but why, so we can see sort of what to do with that information. Um, And I like to think about the fact that doctors kind of have the secret sauce, right? They've got these two components that make them really well trusted. 
So one is they have like the technical competence that we're looking for. You know, they've been trained for years. Everybody sees the certificates on the walls, right? They've been in medical school. They've been in residency. They've been in training. Um, and they understand how the immune system works, how vaccines work, how the people's bodies react. Um, they can read the papers, right? There's that, that piece of it that people have confidence in. Um, but doctors also have something that I think public health agencies, it's harder to communicate. Um, and that's what I would call sort of the, the compassionate side, the caring side. Doctors spend their lives taking care of people and people believe that they have their best interest at heart. And those pieces together, it's not just about technical competence, it's about that caring relationship. And so when you think about sort of messengers for, to sort of carry the, the, the message of vaccination and to give parents the, the space to ask questions, right? That's, that's doctors, they've got those two pieces, technical competence and compassion. So they're really important in that um, and provide a, an amazing opportunity for parents to connect um, and to um, feel comfortable with the decision. Yeah, and I know you have some questions for Jillian too. So Jillian, based on all the research that you are doing, what else can I tell you that you're, what else can you tell us that yeah. you are seeing in this research that might be helpful to people? Well, I think, um, you know, what we're seeing in the research, right, is that Parents need some time with the information. They are most, like for parents who are not yet, have not yet vaccinated their kids, they're mostly concerned about sort of long-term safety issues. Um, that's really the driver. Um, and so um, having someone who can talk to them about the fact that there've been so many um, doses given with very few side effects, um, uh, that the research is longstanding even though the vaccine is new, um, those kind of conversations are what need to happen for a lot of parents. Um, and so that's really the piece that um, physicians and others can communicate when they're talking to them um, as one piece of that conversation. And, you know, the other thing that both you and Veronica have brought up in this conversation was this whole idea of where the vaccine is given. You know, I think there might be parents out there who really are concerned about the, you know, side effects from the vaccine. And maybe they'd be more comfortable if it was given with a doctor present or a nurse, you know, present or the pediatrician in the pediatrician's office. Any research on that? Well, I think um, we're used to getting vaccines in that place. Mm -hmm. And so having a new vaccine that comes in a different place, like you're getting at your pharmacy or, you know, that's really different. I mean, once you're in the office with a physician, that's an opportunity for physicians to really, um, you know, as I sometimes say, you know, it's not just that doctors care for you, right? They care about you, right? And that personal connection is so critical. Um, so when parents have questions, they can rely on them. And physicians have an opportunity to say like, hey, let me put this in context, right? I care about you. I know your kid. I've known them for a lot of years. I know, you know, their grandma has diabetes and we want to protect her. We want to protect that relationship. We know that, you know, your child is finally back in school and they're finally thriving. We want to protect that. I mean, the COVID vaccine protects against a lot of harms of, of COVID, not just the virus. And having that conversation is so critical. And the best place for that is in a place where parents are comfortable and used to it. And that's really the physician's office. And do you have any other advice for healthcare professionals as they do try to convince people to get the COVID vaccine and other childhood vaccines that are really necessary? Yeah. Well, first, I want to say thanks to all the physicians who are out there doing this hard work. 
Um, this is really, you know, the COVID has been so, um, it's just so, we recognize so much what the burden is on frontline workers and we're so grateful. And so this is now sort of the next wave of the work that you're doing and acknowledging that and recognizing that I think is important. Um, and I think that the relationship that physicians have had with their patients through these hard times in particular is something that you can lean on. Making sure that you're connecting with your patients and, and telling them that you care about them, right? That's really important. Telling them what you're doing for your own family. Um, seeing that in the context as humans, and again, not just caring for them, but caring about them. That's really um, just like a special relationship that physicians have, and we really thank them for the work they're doing. Jillian Steelfisher, Senior Research Scientist with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Thank you for the research and all the work that you do in this area. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really a great uh, thing to be a part of it today. It was nice to meet you. You have been listening to Why I Vaccinate. Coming up next, we are going to finish this conversation and we will continue talking about building community immunity. We'll be back right after this. And Veronica McNally, as we finish uh, this show talking about building community immunity, we now welcome Dr. Pino Colon. He is an emergency medicine specialist with Henry Ford Health System. Dr. Colon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And Veronica, I am going to continue letting you kind of kick these segments off uh, because I know that this is something that is uh, very important to you, emergency medicine, and you've got a lot of questions for Dr. Colon. Yeah, Dr. Colon, it's been a rough couple of years. Can you talk about how the pandemic has impacted patient care in Michigan? Well, that's a great question, and it's not an easy one. When I think about something like that, I think about where we were and where we are. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was so much unknown and so many things that we needed to do, so many uh, things that were new and scary for all of us. Patients were dying alone in their hospitals and the emergency departments. Uh, over this period of time, especially now, uh, where we seem to be seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, we can reflect on what we've learned. Um, but in that time, there has been a lot of fear, a lot of uh, burnout on the part of our patients, on the part of our, our uh, healthcare workers as well. Um, so this has been uh, quite a, a journey for us. We went for, at least in the emergency department, caring for those in the departments, fearing for our lives every day, going to work, coming home, changing in the garage for fear of bringing something in the house. Uh, and now the manifestations of all that have led to the the moral injury or the burnout, as it's sometimes referred to. Um, and so it's nice to have what seems to be this period of respite now where we can collectively take our catch our breaths and, and get ready for what faces us ahead. What role did vaccinations play in, in this pandemic in terms of emergency care? Well, that cannot be underemphasized. Um, where we are today would not have been possible without vaccines. Uh, even those that are getting ill now, if they've been vaccinated, those are mild illnesses. It continues to be true that those in the hospitals, those who are really sick, uh, those who are passing away from the disease are those who are unvaccinated in the overwhelming majority of cases. 
And now we're starting to see that mass mandates have lifted, less people are wearing masks. Has there been any change in what you're seeing in terms of patient volume in, in, with that factor? Well, the interesting thing that has been most evident, uh, I'll compare last year to this year. Last year when the mask mandates were everywhere, I didn't see one case of influenza, which was the first time in my 25-year career that that has been the case. Uh, now that mask mandates have been relaxed, we're starting to see much more influenza in addition to other respiratory illnesses uh, and, yes, even COVID, even though the numbers are down somewhat. So you mentioned influenza. I think it's a good good time to maybe talk about the importance of influenza vaccination. Over the years, obviously before COVID, since the masking has been effective as it relates to preventing influenza, what, what can you say about the significance of that disease? Uh, this, that disease has not gone away. Although it hasn't been in the forefront the last two years, it is still there. It is still very, very important to get those vaccines because it is uh, before the pandemic, it was true that the influenza killed 64,000 people every year in this country. So it is not an insignificant disease. Yeah. And I know you have some questions for Dr. Cologne, too. I do, Veronica. First of all, Dr. Cologne, I want to talk a little bit more about the mask mandates and masking up. I'm really conflicted about it, you know, because I kind of think when you're in a big crowd still, for example, on an airplane, on a train, or in a in an area where there's a lot of people and you're closely packed in with them, that a mask is still a pretty good idea. What do you think? Well, I, a couple of ways to answer that question. First of all, I think that you should do what's individually most important for you. And I think you're smart to have that mindset. I'll take this back and I'll give you my own perspective. Before my nine-year-old was eligible for the vaccine, I was fully vaccinated. I wore the, my mask whenever he and I would go grocery shopping, for example. Mm -hmm. I wanted to set a good example. It didn't matter to me whether what others were doing. I care for myself and my family. Uh, and to your other point about feeling more comfortable wearing a mask, just look at the recent uh, gathering in Washington where there have been 70 cases that came out of that dinner. So are you... Uh, cautious for doing so? Yes. Are you smart for doing so? Yes. You need to think about you, yourself, your family, your individual health concerns. So I don't think anybody should fault anyone else if they feel comfortable wearing a mask. Now, you recently wrote an op-ed around how we can shift our thinking about COVID from it being a pandemic to more of a endemic. Can you address that and explain what your thinking is? Well, to oversimplify things, the pandemic, as we experienced initially and, and continued experience, that's world devastation. And that may, I don't mean to say that in uh, overly dramatic form, but it is that's the the context in which I like to put this because it helps give people more clarity when they're thinking about these things, rather than influenza, which be, uh, is a more manageable disease, and it comes around and the vaccine uh, takes care of that, and it is seasonal, and we know what to expect when it happens. When this came out, nobody knew of the disease, nobody knew what to expect, even though SARS and MERS of many years past were corona-type viruses, we had never seen a virus like like this. So what are you thinking right now? Are we still in the pandemic? And then how close are we to getting toward an endemic? 
you know, technically we're still in the pandemic, uh, but boy, it feels a lot better than it did last year. Um, I, I feel like we've, I mentioned earlier, we're able to collectively catch our breath and um, at least see some sunshine at the end of the tunnel, some light at the end of the tunnel. Does that mean there aren't going to be more variants? Absolutely not. There will be. BA2 is certainly is currently circulating. There will be others, but we have to be prepared and we will learn just like we've learned all along the way for, for the, throughout the entire pandemic. Now, what kind of questions are you getting from people when they come in to see you with regard to vaccination, masking, just the virus in general? Well, the two most common I get, should I get vaccinated and is, is it safe and which booster should I get? So let's back up and uh, talk about should I get vaccinated. In the emergency department, I have this unique time to interact and form a bond with somebody. And we see everybody across every spectrum, every community. And so I'm very, very aware of vaccine hesitancy and why it exists and and how to address it. And so I start off typically asking open-ended questions. What is it I can answer for you? Um, And so I try to make headway there. Uh, The other thing is, oh my gosh, how could this have been, how could it be safe because it was developed so quickly? So we start talking about the difference being there were billions and billions of dollars and many, many more research researchers put into this process. So the process was not new at all. It just got more attention, which is why we were able to get these vaccines to market much more quickly. All really, really important and great advice. Thank you for uh, sharing your expertise with us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Pino Colon, Emergency Medicine Specialist with Henry Ford Health System. And Veronica, it was great being with you again, talking about building community immunity, especially as these cases are starting to, you know, be a little bit lower. Some good news here today. Great topic. Thanks, Anne. You've been listening to Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and on behalf of my co-host, Veronica McNally, thank you for listening, and we hope you have a great day.